Welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the podcast. And this week, we continue our reader Q&A with Madden America founder Robert Whittaker. In part one, we discussed Madden America, the biopsychosocial model, and the history of psychiatry. For part two, we'll be covering reader questions on pharmaceutical marketing and issues with psychiatric treatments, including psychiatric drugs and electroconvulsive therapy. Thank you to all of you who took the time and trouble to get in touch. You sent some great questions. And if you haven't already, please do listen to part one of this Q&A, which you can find by visiting maddenamerica.com or it will be on your preferred podcast player. And before we get to hear from Bob, this is our last podcast episode of 2023. So thank you so much for being with us and for taking the time to listen. I hope that you'll continue to follow the podcast in 2024. Okay, we're, we're going to move on to some questions now that look more at perhaps the history of psychiatry and, and perhaps more related to um, your first book on this, Madden America, rather than Anatomy of an Epidemic. So Mary has sent in some questions and her first is, um, in the past, there were other tools used to at least try to help folks in crisis. Has anyone investigated how alternative therapies were diminished and basically vanquished? Was it related to medical insurance or government programs? It was related to 1980, the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So if you go before 1980, if you go in DSM-1 and DSM-2, those books are actually tell that psychiatric disorders, difficulties, often are reactions to difficulties in the environment, say to the stresses in the family. Now, that was always seen as a core group of biological disorders, but that was a small group. So that's, that was the understanding in the 70s that, in fact, social things did count. Then what happened in the 1970s is psychiatry as a profession said, we're under siege. Our, our future, our survival is threatened. Why is it threatened? Because there is an anti-psychiatry movement saying we function more as a means of social control than as medical doctors. Benzodiazepines, their most famous uh, drugs, most popular drugs, were being seen as addictive and harmful. Their psychotherapy was not seen as any better than therapy, talk therapies offered by psychologists and counselors. There was a report that their diagnostics were invalid, non-reliable invalid. And then finally, there were two things culturally that happened that really said psychiatry is, we need to remake ourselves. One was the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which presented the staff in a mental hospital as crazier than the patients, and frankly, brutal and oppressive. And then there was a, a paper published in Science by Rosenhan that said what he did in this experiment, he sent ordinary people into mental hospitals. They said they were hearing a word like thud, et cetera. They were all admitted. They were admitted into the hospital and diagnosed with schizophrenia and never found out as imposters, even though they stopped sort of, they never behaved poorly. And um, they even stopped complaining of that word. Now, there's been some questions about, raised about that study. But nevertheless, in the 1970s, that hit like a bang that we don't know what insanity is. Five days after that paper appeared, the American Psychiatric Association said, we got to redo our diagnostic manual. We're going to set up a task force. And as they did this, they said, how can we rebrand ourselves? We can rebrand ourselves as doctors in white coats, as medical doctors. Now, how do you do that? You call them diseases of the brain. 
Now, there was no research that justified this rebranding, this reconceptualization of what happened to human beings. This is new. Now, the minute they published DSM-3, they have to sell this new model of thinking to the public. And they launch a big PR effort with money from the drug companies. Now, once that happens, health insurance companies say, okay, if it's a disease in the brain, why should we pay for talk therapy? Why should we pay for anything else? We'll just pay for you to get the pill that fixes the disease. So that's what happened. But it's important to understand it happened because American psychiatry in the 1970s felt it was future as a medical discipline was under siege, it was being threatened, and they rebranded themselves as doctors in white coats. They literally put on white coats. And what do doctors in white coats do? They fix illnesses in the brain. And that's when we begin hearing about chemical imbalances. And that's when this completely false narrative was told to us. And a, a follow-up question from Mary. She asks, did psychiatry become involved with the decade of the brain? And just, just for some context, so the decade of the brain was defined as the period between 1990 and 1999, and it was part of a large effort involving the National Institute of Mental Health and the National Institutes of Health to enhance public awareness of the benefits to be de derived from brain research. Yeah, sure. They, they fit in hand in glove. Okay, because part of the decade of the brain message to the public is we were discovering all these incredible things about the brain, making this great advance. And of course, we're going to decode the human genome during this time as well. So that becomes the larger context, right? The society is saying, wow, we're learning so much from brain research. And now psychiatry steps forward, and we're at the forefront of this because we've discovered the molecule for depression. We've discovered the molecule for psychosis and schizophrenia. And we now have drugs that fix that imbalance like insulin for diabetes. That fit into that larger story that, uh, you know, decade of the brain like hand in glove. This was the promise being realized. And that's why, and then we heard these drugs were, Prozac was made you better than well. And we even heard, for example, by psychiatrists talking about, you know, the problem for society is now, we're learning these, so much about the brain. We can tinker with it. We can give you the personality you want. That was sort of the insanity that was being uh, pitched to the public, that you're all just sort of robots dependent on your chemicals. Yeah, the decade of the brain provided the larger story to make the chemical imbalance story resonate with the public. The next question is from Dan, who says, Psychiatry as a whole is extremely reluctant to acknowledge that the current system of psychiatric mental health care has harmed large numbers of people. However, for the rest of medicine, this is not an existential crisis. The general practitioners who currently prescribe the majority of antidepressants could drastically cut back their prescribing, and it wouldn't affect them that much. They have lots of other things to worry about. What could be done to get the rest of medicine involved? If we could get the rest of medicine to look at the evidence, then maybe they might be willing to apply some pressure to help change things? What could be done to force the issue? You know, that's a great question. And obviously the problem is the other doctors, especially the GPs, the primary care physicians, they don't know the evidence space for these drugs, right? They just presume that they're helpful because that's what they are sort of told from their colleagues in psychiatry then they focus on what's going on in their particular specialty. Now, I do think there's a general message starting to get out to primary care doctors that these antidepressants aren't so great. Even if they know the literature, there is an, an increasing acknowledgement that often they don't work. 
There are withdrawal problems. So the point is, how does the general practitioner get this message? Does it come through the research literature or, in fact, does it filter through the public dialogue as, uh, on the whole? It filters to them through the public dialogue as a whole. Not, they're not reading the psychiatric literature. But this is way, in a way, I think that Mad in America and, and others have indeed impacted the story because the story of the lack of efficacy really of antidepressants goes back at least 20 years in terms of even over the short term in terms of their benefit over placebo. And then I, I do think that Anatomy of an Epidemic and, and Mad in America help bring up the story that of long-term difficulties with these drugs. And I think that is around antidepressants, they have lost their luster even with GPs. Now, the problem for GPs is, and primary, we call them primary care physicians, is they get patients coming to them that are still living with that mainstream media message that's, I need an antidepressant. An antidepressant will, is, will is be a solution to all my ills, whatever it might be. So they come to the GP and say, I want an antidepressant. That's why I'm here. And there is something called the allopathic compulsion which is an old term saying that when you have an allopathic form of medicine, that when someone comes to an allopathic doctor, they don't expect to go home with advice or saying you change your life. They expect to go home with a pill or some form of treatment. So a pill, when the GP prescribes it or the primary care physician prescribes it, fulfills that allopathic sort of compulsion and uh, really what is a ritual, a medical ritual. So the GPs, unfortunately, are sort of feeling, okay, I got to get this person out of my office in 15 minutes. I can't really sit down with them for an hour and talk about changes in their life. Maybe I can mention it, but they're going to want to go home with a pill. So unfortunately, really, we would need psychiatry to, to really say loud and clear, do not prescribe an antidepressant on you know, first visit, especially for the mildly depressed. So we need psychiatry to give a message to the GPs and medical community as a whole that these drugs need to be used in a different manner. Is that possible? That's the hope. Thank you, Bob. I know from keeping an eye on things over here in the UK, there is more and more and more talk about deprescribing. There is more and more talk about acknowledging that if uh, an older person ends up on a cocktail of not just psychiatric drugs, but blood pressure drugs, blood thinning drugs, you know, pain medications, sedatives, then the cumulative burden of all those successive medications actually just create longer term patients. So I have seen, actually, I have been quite heartened actually by seeing fairly senior people in our National Health Service talk about reducing people's drug burdens. You know, you're seeing something in the UK there that's really great. And I think the UK is a leader in this whole deprescribing talk. It's not happening so much in Scandinavian countries, Latin American countries. It's starting a little bit in Brazil. But the UK is the one that's really pushing that forward. And I think it's because there is a critical psych psychiatry network there you know, that has been there for a long time, that has some uh, you know, reputation within the larger field. Uh, there's some good consumer groups there. I think the National Health Service is more also maybe responsive to the, the concerns around money creating you know, permanent patients and all the corresponding physical problems. Now, deprescribing is 
touched upon in the United States now and then, but it's not nearly the topic it is in the UK. It just hasn't entered the, 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 the mainstream narrative the way it has in the UK. But hopefully, as the UK does this and makes it a routine part of practice, that will start um, you know, being exported to the US and other countries. So that is a hopeful sign for sure. And, and James, that goes back to something, how we can learn from each other. So by Mad in America able to report on what's happening in the UK, that helps bring that story to other countries as well and practitioners. And, and the, the great thing about the deprescribing story is the evidence is all in. You don't want old people on five drugs. You don't want younger people on five drugs. So we know that something, it's, it, no one really is defending this sort of polypharmacy that has taken off. Uh, it, it's understood to be a form of bad medicine. The next question is from DB. Rumor has it that within medicine, psychiatry is seen as the least intellectually taxing medical field. Is there any truth in this? Yeah, that's a long story. So psychiatry really had its place for long-term in the asylum, okay? That's where they first grew as, as people who ran asylums. And they sort of came out of the asylum, partially in response to Freudian therapies, but really in the 1950s after the launch of all the new psychiatric drugs. Now, there has always been a sense, long been a sense, that psychiatrists were not real doctors. Although in the 50s, they sort of had this moment in the sun. And then, in, for example, in the 1970s, the New York Times published a, um, an article calling Psychiatry's Anxious Years. And part of it was that medical students looked down on psychiatry, those who chose psychiatry as, as their specialty. And why did they do that? Because they didn't think it was a real medical specialty. And, and people who went there weren't as, I'm just going to say what the thought was. They weren't as smart, as intellectual. It, it, it attracted people who weren't just quite up to, up to stuff with the other doctors. Now, part of the rebranding was doctors saying, not only are we up to snuff, psychiatrists, we're at the lead of, of advancing medicine. And if you can read their annual uh, talks by their APA presidents, and all like, we're doing amazing research. We're at the forefront of this brain research, et cetera. So they, at least internally, were telling themselves, not only are we the equal, we're the ones doing this incredible brain research. Uh, and by the way, that article said how few doctors, residents were going into psychiatry. Well, it's still the case, actually. And if you look, look at American psychiatrists now, so many of them come from abroad. I don't mean to be diminished people from other countries in any way. They obviously can be great doctors. But you see a lot of psych American psychiatrists now that are not American-born. And the reason for that, there is still a prejudice against psychiatry as a dis discipline that isn't as uh, difficult and as demanding as the other disciplines. It's the surgeons and the heart specialists that see themselves at the top of this pyramid of doctors. But if you have this pyramid, I think most people, there'd be many people thinking psychiatrists are at the bottom of that pyramid of, of doctors. Okay, um, we're going to move on to a few questions now around kind of the use of psychiatric drugs and other treatments. So this first one is from John, who says, I see people of all ages who get on one drug or a cocktail of psychiatric drugs and do well in the long term with maybe some drug changes and adjustments of dose along the way. They can often function better or hold down a job. In other words, the drugs seem to have actually made their life better. Is that possible? Sure, of course. Uh, two things on this. When we talk about drugs worsening long-term outcomes, we're looking about what, what, what is sort of the spectrum of outcomes you see in nature. 
You can look at that as what happened before the drugs, but also studies in which you have medicated and unmedicated patients, okay? And your, your form of care is doing harm if in the aggregate, it's worsening outcomes, okay? In other words, you see more chronicity and you see more functional impairment. And you see that time and time again in long-term studies of antipsychotics, antidepressants, in fact, of all psychiatric drugs. So say, for example, with depression, the natural course of depression was seen as like, if you have a case of pretty severe initial depression, 50% will get better within, in some period of time. And we're talking about hospitalized depression. They'll get out and they'll never have another episode of depression. There was a second one that would say like, oh, you'll get better. And then maybe every three or four years, you'll have another episode. Only about 20% would become chronically ill. So in order to have an antidepressant therapy, not do harm, it has to beat that natural spectrum of outcomes. Now, what we see with antidepressants is many, many fewer people on the drugs long-term doing well long-term, you know, in terms of remission of symptoms, times without symptoms, employment levels, et cetera. But that said, there are some people on antidepressants who do fine and find them, find them helpful. There are some people on antipsychotics, of course, who do fine. Um, and find them helpful. However, we know, for example, from the Harrow study, that the people with diagnosis of schizophrenia who got off medications, 40% were in recovery long-term versus 5% for those on meds. So the 5% on meds, they're doing well, but it's still lower than the, the natural recovery rate you see with the off-med group. The other thing about this on an individualistic, that's an evidence-based answer. When I'm doing okay, I'm one of those people, maybe I'm on a, a one drug, two drugs, three drugs, and I go in, I'll get my dosage, and I'm, I'm working, I'm okay, I have a de decent social life. Even there, you don't know, what would that person's life have been like if they'd been given a different form of care right from the start? Maybe that minimized a long-term drug use, focused on psychosocial care and making changes in your life. What would their life have been like? We don't know. That person doesn't know what that possibility might have been. So even their sort of self-judgment is not, um, it's not proof of the merits of the drugs, even for themselves, because they lack a, ref a, a, a knowing what would, would have been possible for them. I just want to say, so some people are doing fine on the drugs. I'm so happy when that happens. That's great, but, and that's the but, you have to look at the evidence base for long-term when you think about how drugs might be used. And even from the individual, you don't really know what your course of your life might have been if you hadn't gone down this path. Okay, um, another one on, on drugs and treatments from Neil, who says, in light of the extensive documentation of harms associated with the long-term use of antipsychotics and SSRIs, I'm interested in Bob's thoughts on whether there is still potential for a consumer or survivor-defined psychiatric harm reduction approach to medication that looks at psychiatric medication as a short-term option that needs to be reinforced with other forms of psychological, social, and community support for individuals. Well, that's what we need. Uh, you know, we need the grassroots rebellion. We've sort of talked, James, that the, the change is not really going to come from those in power. But if you have a grassroots peer-supported demand for change, um, and if that grassroots uh, consumer demand grows, 
that can actually lead to change. And that's actually what we need. So for example, in Oregon right now, there is funding for four respite houses that are going to be peer run. Now, if you have a time of difficulty and you can get a, a, a drug, you can go into this respite houses and find some safety and some time to recover, that sort of thing. If we had those sort of places. And then within that narrative, within that peer run narrative that, okay, so these drugs can be helpful over the short term, and then let's see how we can help people get off. They form their own narrative. And as that narrative grows, that really can start becoming a dominant narrative. And I think one of the things that has happened with the internet, for example, we would not be hearing about all the problem withdrawal problems with antidepressants if it weren't for the internet. That's where, that's where the voices of patients began to spread and be heard and collected. If we didn't have that, would you even have surveys by the professionals looking at this harm? You wouldn't. But that shows the inner, what shows what has happened with our understanding withdrawal from antidepressants and antipsychotics. It shows the power of the internet, in fact, to give life to peer run harm reduction initiatives and practices. So that's one of the reasons, by the way, James, that Matt in America has personal stories, but we also have blogs talking about these initiatives, talking about the respite houses in Oregon, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, uh, another one related to drugs. So this is from Kent, who says, why is the critical psychiatry community often so skeptical of psychedelics? Unlike nearly all the failed treatments that litter psychiatry's history, psychedelics do not constrict and darken the mind. They can expand and illuminate it. Are psychedelics not compatible with the mission of critical psychiatry? I love this question. It's such a timely question. Well, first of all, I'm skeptical of psychedelics being incorporated into a medical practice, okay? And being seen as a form of medicine. Because I think that that ability to illuminate the mind and expand the mind may start to be lost when we're talking about clinics giving out psychedelics. And I, it's interesting, in Brazil, there was, a, there was in fact a talk, I was, just came from a conference in Brazil, there was a talk about psychedelics by a practitioner, a psychiatrist who works with, you know, he has a lot of a knowledge of how indigenous people use them. He said, psychedelics don't happen outside of a context for taking psychedelics. Okay. And you need that context for the psychedelic to be, in fact, and be a, a source of illumination and expanding the mind. But now psychiatry is adopting it as its drug. Okay. And there's ketamine clinics. That's a very different context than, you know, being in some environment where you're going to think, you're going to sort of prepare yourself for a journey. That's that. We also do have to know that psychedelics, drugs that change your mind, whether it be LSD, whether it be whatever it might be, ayahuasca, you know, even marijuana, et cetera, there is always a potential for. And if you look at newly diagnosed psychotic patients, the patients that come into emergency rooms that are psychotic, so many of them, frankly, have been doing drugs, either prescribed drugs or illicit drugs. And I know we're not supposed to say this, but a lot of you do see people who are using marijuana regularly. As, as, that's an increasing risk of having a psychotic episode. So the answer to this question is, I think it presents the psychedelics as a drug that provides illumination and expanding the mind. And I've taken psychedelics a couple of times, especially when I was young. That's when I took them. I took peyote. I took LSD a couple times. 
they were sort of memorable experiences. I will say uh, I felt my mind was a little different afterwards, more open to different possibilities. But we can't think of them as a drug that's going to replace other therapies. Because that takes it out of the context. And if I'm given a, a, a psychedelic by a psychiatrist in a clinic, I just don't have much faith in that. And then we have to say the history of psychiatry is about one therapy after another being hailed as the new great therapy. Now we started we're putting psychedelics in that boat. And I personally think if we make it a drug, if we make it something that is prescribed by doctors, it will be an unmitigated disaster. Understood. And I guess also there's there's the risk of kind of reifying this concept of if, if, if a psychedelic is given in a clinical setting, then, you know, the psychedelic is maybe giving you something that's that's deficient in your brain or wrong in your brain. It's continuing this idea that there's something wrong in you that needs an external influence to correct, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's the whole point of when you make it a drug, that it's fixing something wrong with you. And the idea that ayahuasca or LSD or peyote or any of these drugs fix some known biological problem is just the height of stupidity. Okay, a couple more on on drugs or treatment. So this is DB again, who says, what was the rationale for advising people to stay on SSRIs for at least six months after feeling better? Given the longer you take the drug, the more severe the withdrawal symptoms, does this increase the chance patients will have withdrawal symptoms, which will therefore be misdiagnosed as relapse? Did pharma know this? And was this therefore a way of engineering lifelong customers of these drugs? Well, I mean, maybe pharma knew that there would be trouble coming up because at least by the late 70s, they were beginning to understand that research was showing your brain adapted to these drugs. In other words, it was changed by these drugs. But that's not how the continual maintenance came about, actually. What happened was when antidepressants were first introduced, the understanding was depression is an episodic disorder, okay? And it will cure up on its own. And therefore, antidepressants could be used just to speed up that natural recovery process. So if you go back to the, the, the research or the advice that was coming out of the National Institute of Mental Health in the early 1970s was, this isn't a permanent disorder, but maybe we can use it to speed up healing. Here's what happened, though. So you put people on these drugs, and then they began to find that, of course, once people came off, they relapsed fairly frequently. So are you going to see that as a return of the disease or a withdrawal effect? And in the 1980s, they had, a, they had a panel of experts, depression experts. And what became to be seen was, we are now seeing that depression effect runs a chronic course. Because once you have the antidepressants, people are coming off and they're relapsing. And then they go back on, right? Now they have a choice. Are we seeing harm done from exposure to the antidepressants? It's causing a chronification of the disease, which was addressed at that time. That was suggested. Or are we just we advancing our science and discovering the true course of depression, that it's a chronic disorder? Now, which do you think they chose? Are we giving people a drug that causes harm, chronifies the disease, or are we making scientific progress and discovering that depression is, in fact, a chronic disease? They chose the latter course, okay? Now, once you reconceptualize it as a chronic disorder, you say, well, then we need people to come off. And it's evidence-based. Because after three, four, six months, and you, you take the drug away, and by the way, when they first did this, it was, withdraw- it was pop, abruptly withdrawal. 
you're going to see this rebound effect and you're going to see people relapse more frequently that come off. And now you have an evidence base for maintaining people on antidepressants. Now, once that happens, are drug companies thrilled? Sure, because now they see that they're converting episodic payments into lifelong pay, uh, patients, and that is a prescription for great profits. You want lifelong customers. So are they going to go against it? Are they going to say anything against that? No, they're going uh, to let psychiatry carry the ball on this and, and remain mute about anything about withdrawal effects as much as possible, unless they're forced to mention it. But they're certainly not going to counter the idea that depression is a chronic disorder. And of course, in the late 1980s and 1990s, in order to market Prozac, they basically, you got a, a, a coalition between psychiatry, the NIMH, and pharma companies to educate the public that it was a chronic disorder. But it wasn't engineered with that purpose. It wasn't that Machiavellian. It, it, it evolved in this way. And if you want to call the Machiavellian part now is psychiatry doesn't want to admit this is what it's creating and neither does pharmaceutical company and, and neither, frankly, does the NIMH want to admit this as well. It's part of this. We organize ourselves around the false narrative of progress. If we understood that six-month use does expose people to withdrawal effects and rebound effects, then you'd have to have a real rethinking of these drugs. Okay, so um, the next question is from Wendy, who asks, how can we work together to stop electroconvulsive treatment? Well, I'll go back that we're not a lobbyist. However, um, we do provide information about ECT. And the information is, over and over again, it does cause cognitive deficits long-term in a high percentage of people. There's no evidence that it's effective beyond 30 days. So what we, Matt in America, can do is just keep on promoting or publishing this information. We have a new one coming out that's about ECT in kids. Why you'd give ECT in kids to developing brain is, is beyond me. But if I think I, what I saw is 70% suffer cognitive deficits. Now, you would think, you would say, oh, my God, do not give ECT. But instead, they sort of said, well, that's okay. We're eliminating the depression. All I can say is there is such a long history of research showing that it harms the brain. When it was first introduced, it was understood to cause what's caused, called closed head injury. You know what that is? That's concussions. So closed head injuries, you're in a car accident, you bang your head. You don't see a gash, but you've been concussed. And what they showed is, by the way, here's how they made the connection. People were depressed, who had closed head injury by an accident. They were depressed for a while. And it's basically what, what seems to happen is the brain, the body floods the brain with sort of a hormonal sort of effort to repair the brain, repair the damage. And that provides an uplift. But it's, it's, it's another, the, the uplift you get away from depression with ECT seems to be because it's responding to brain damage. Anyway, answer is this. Know the research evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. Promote that at every possibility and just make that as much as possible part of the narrative. And Bob, do you know if, um, so again, in the UK, I know that John Reed and Chris Harrop and, and others have been doing quite a lot of work to look at the evidence base to support ECT. And in the UK, at least, the, the number of psychiatrists willing to do that procedure is, is really, really tailed off in the last five or 10 years. Is it similar in, in the States? Do you know? 
Not at all. We don't have anything close to a John Reed, uh, you know, in his cohort doing research in the United States. All we can do is import what they're finding. And that's what we do in Madden America. But it's John Reed who's, and his research more than anyone, um, there's others, but are really making this story known about the harms of ECT in many ways. And, and John, of course, did a paper with Irving Kirsch. Now, Irving's the United, from the United States, but he doesn't have the same platform among American medicine that John is gaining in, in really throughout the world. So unfortunately, you don't see in our press stories about harm from ECT. You don't see in our mainstream mess, uh, press about loss of memory, cognitive deficits. Th- th- this is the problem. I mean, instead, this narrative in the United States is this is the most effective treatment there is. If I had a presence, go, 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 go have some ECT treatment. Thank you, Bob. So um, the last uh, couple of questions then are related to the pharmaceutical industry. So um, this is another question from DB who says, generally speaking, marketing targets younger people with the intent of creating lifelong customers. Does pharma take this same approach, do you believe? Well, it certainly did in the 1990s. So what happened in the early 1990s was that the adult market for antidepressants was being saturated. Okay. So they said, there was a meeting at one point. They said, well, what, what, what are untapped markets? And they said, how about the kids? You know, kids are an untapped market. We're not prescribing them to kids. And one of the reasons was the understanding was that ups and downs, emotional upheaval was normal for kids, normal for teens. They were filled with angst and that it passed, okay? It could even be daily or something like that. That's number one. Two, the understanding was that trials of antidepressants in kids weren't effective, okay? So pharmaceutical companies eyeing this market began paying thought leaders in American psychiatry to A, say, oh, now we understand that depression is a real illness in kids, okay? So to get rid of that idea. Now they have to show that antidepressants are effective in kids. And in fact, what they found when they did their trials over and over again was they weren't effective and they increased the suicide risk. Now, at that point, it, what happened was, in a sort of a collusion between pharmaceutical companies and the thought leaders, they began, frankly, spinning their data, hiding suicide risks. Eli Lilly managed to design a trial uh, that minimized the placebo response in kids and that thereby showed Prozac as effective, whereas in all the others, the drug did not beat placebo even in the remission of symptoms. So the, there was a targeting of youth to expand the market of antidepressants into youth, and they kept going to build that market in, co- in concert with thought leaders in the United States and eventually beyond to sustain that market, and that's what's happened. And that is a story of harm done. Increased risk of suicide, no benefit, and creating long-term patients. With, and that's the first thing. Then we got juvenile bipolar disorder. Okay, that also used to be seen as a mature personality, but then we had someone named Joseph Biederman, our son, saying, oh, no, we're finding in his kids years as young as two, okay, and you maybe need to medicate people young as two. And again, the makers of the new atypicals, specifically Risperidone, are helping to fund that idea. Of course, he produces things saying antipsychotics are good for kids. And so now, next thing you know, we have a disorder that wasn't even seen as ever happening in kids, now becoming um, you know, quite common in kids. And that makes, you get a diagnosis of juvenile bipolar, that's a diagnosis that sets you on a path to be a permanent patient in life. 
a career as a mental patient. So again, it, 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 there is a pharmaceutical impulse motive to create lifelong patients. And if you can create young patients and turn them into lifelong patients, that's a very profitable model. Now, the irony is the companies that built this, their patents ran out. <laughs> so they're no longer enjoying those profits because of all, uh, all of the uh, um, off-label dr- drugs. But was it present? Was this what happened, pathologizing kids to serve in market needs? Absolutely. And the very people that should have protected children from it, psychiatrists, failed and in fact enabled that pathologizing of kids. And it's one of the greatest harms that has come from the disease model of all. In fact, I'd say that is the greatest harm of turning kids into patients and telling them they have defective brains when they're young. And of course, ADHD is part of this as well. And that is about creating markets and sustaining. Okay. And so on to the final question then. So again, from DB about the pharmaceutical industry, how can we counter the misrepresentation of critical views as stigmatizing mental illness and pill shaming by mental, the mental health industrial complex and its key opinion leaders? <laughs> it's another great question. That goes to this thing of, of killing the messenger. You know, that's why you said they're doing harm. Oh, and now you're doing harm by stigmatizing and shaming people. First of all, you know what builds stigma? They've done studies. is when you say the problem is inside the the person's head. Because then people say, oh, they lack control over themselves. They can't help themselves. They're defective. That's the most, which which would you rather be told? You have a defective brain and you're going to be defective all your life. Or like, yeah, you know, as you know, Bad things happen to you, right? Which identity would you actually rather have? Which is less stigmatizing? And also, if someone's having trouble, you see that person that's maybe some difficulties happen to them or they're defective. Which is more stigmatizing to society? Well, it's quite clear when you promote the disease model, that actually is what adds to stigmatization. Okay? And, but it's been so effective. It's now some kids want to, Adopt these identities on TikTok and all. And as far as pill shaming, that's the story over and over again, at least within Madden America, most critical psychiatrists is it is about informed consent. And it's about letting the public know what we really know about these drugs and what we know about other possibilities. I don't know anyone who's saying, shame on you for taking the drugs. That's not what I see. The blame for this failure, this harm being done is placed on a profession that has sold us a, a, a false narrative. I'm talking about, it starts with American psychiatry, and that was exported, by a drug companies that, of course, are easy, eager to promote that model with their advertisements and all. And frankly, on a mainstream press that doesn't do its job and go into the actual research, but that serves as a, like a stenographer for those, for those other two, in particular, American psych, the psychiatric profession. That's where the blame should go. And, the, and when you hear it being placed on critics of psychiatry, it just means it's trying to kill the messenger. Because once again, if they had the evidence to support that they were doing well, that outcomes were improving, that any of this was true, and people were flourishing much more with medications as opposed, that's what they would point to. But they can't. When I hear that information, pill shaming, doing harm. All I say to myself is these people have to kill the messenger because they can't 
provide an evidence base. Perfectly summed up, Bob. Thank you. Well, that's all the questions that we have. So thank you to everyone that took the time to send in some, some really fantastic questions. And thank you to you, Bob, for taking so much time to respond to them. It's uh, been fascinating to hear you talk about these things. You know, uh, my pleasure. And James, I think it's this was really important to, to invite questions um, and, and help helping be known what we do at Mad in America and why, what our purpose is, what our processes are, what we, impact we think we have, what answers we have to these sort of uh, attacks. So I, I think sometimes maybe, frankly, we don't do a good enough job about informing our readership about what is sort of our philosophy and what's behind what we do. So thank you for thinking of this and organizing it. And we did get through a lot of questions. <laughs> So once again, thank you so much for listening and we look forward to continuing these important critical discussions in 2024. Until then, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.